Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt and I began a special two-part series on 10 issues that we think will be significant for the compliance profession and compliance professional in the upcoming year. In this episode, we take a look at a legislative fix to the Supreme Court's digital realty trust decision, how the Federal Reserve is taking a look at technological service providers, climate change disclosures, and what that means for your corporation going forward. The Supreme Court is considering disgorgements in SEC enforcement actions, and will they allow fraudsters to keep their ill-gotten gains? And critical audit matters. Will companies move to make controls more data-based and less subjective? This episode is not only very interesting, but it's a ton of fun as Matt and I get to put on our pontificating mask and look into that veiled land of the future. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up part two of this special two-part series on 10 issues to look forward to for compliance professionals and compliance programs in 2020. Thanks so much for listening. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This is our first podcast of not only the new year, but the new decade. Uh, So, Matt, you want to give a celebratory remark to our listeners? Well, I just wish everyone a uh, happy new year and a happy new decade here as we uh, continue to rock and roll with that famous field that we call corporate ethics and compliance. So, Matt, you put up on January 1 a blog post entitled Seven Compliance Items to Watch for 2020. I propose that we expand that to 10, and uh, in this podcast, it's going to be the first of a two-parter, and we're going to take your first five issues and kind of ruminate on where we were and maybe where we may be going. So uh, the first one up, you actually reached back uh, back into 2018 to look forward, and that issue was the Supreme Court's decision in Digital Realty Trust. Where do you see this going, or, or perhaps where should it be going? Well, where should it go is to a legislation conclusion in Congress where they would uh, pass a law to undo the what I would say is the damage of that decision, uh, which is the one that said if a whistleblower wants to claim Dodd-Frank whistleblower anti-retaliation protections, that whistleblower must first report to the SEC – And the protections do not extend to you if you only report to your internal compliance program. Uh, And this is one of those weird rulings that I would say is correct on the law, but it is terrible in practice because the consequence has been people have more people have gone to the SEC to bring their allegations forward so they can be protected. Uh, which does the compliance officer no favors. Frankly, it does the legal department no favors either. Because now the SEC knows what the allegation is, and if you think 
Mr. Legal Department, that you can go to the regulators now and claim cooperation credit because you're voluntarily self-reporting, but they already know it because the whistleblower already went to them first and your credit goes out the window. Like, where are we going with this ruling? Um, it does make sense according to the language of the Dodd-Frank statute, but um, that is the problem. And the solution, which we kind of sort of saw starting to have, get resolved in 2019, is that Congress is probably going to clarify the language that whistleblowers who only go to internal compliance departments also still get anti-whistleblower protections. The House has passed that law or passed that legislation. The Senate has introduced it. They are still looking to move forward on it. But both of these bills in both chambers have bipartisan support, including some very big uh, powerful senators such as Chuck Grassley, chairman of the Finance Committee and a devout friend of all whistleblower laws and whistleblower protection. So my hope in 2020 is the Senate passes its bill too. They get some sort of uh, conference going there and uh, they finally do pass this law and Digital Reality Trust's decision is a uh, dustbin of history in 2020. So that's that's number one. So Matt, if I could maybe uh, uh, go back to something you have written, I think, a fair amount on and we've discussed in this podcast, but that was Jay Clayton's abortive attempt to restrict uh, top-end payout of whistleblower awards. You see that as in any way related to the um, consternation around the Supreme Court's decision of digital realty trust, or is that in your mind a, a really separate issue? That's a parallel issue, I would say, and um, that is one of the issues that did not make it onto my list for 2020, uh, mostly because I just didn't have the space for it. But um, I, I struggle to understand where that cap on large awards ever came from, other than some you know, typical pro-business groups did not like the idea of people getting large whistleblower awards. It's not like taxpayers get pay for these large awards or anything like that. This was a solution in search of a problem. Um, and I do know that towards the end of 2019, Jay Clayton put out a statement that says, well, you know, it was never really supposed to be a cap and that was misconstrued and it's not going to be a cap. Like, Dude, whatever you need to tell yourself, Mr. Chairman. But um, the the proposed cap on large awards, I think, is not going to happen. Um, I don't know what is going to happen with whistleblower uh, reforms from the SEC. That probably is going to happen sometime in 2020. Other than the cap, I think most of these proposals from the, the Clayton's, uh, from Chairman Clayton's SEC staff, are actually pretty good for compliance officers and for whistleblowers. So, um, you know, I I hope that we see those things. But you know, my other question would be. For a lot of these whistleblower award reforms, does that really matter to compliance officers who just want to make sure that internal whistleblowers feel comfortable speaking up? The digital reality trust thing, that, that will make them feel more comfortable. Um, the large caps, the small caps, more uh, more protections or a more expedited review of whistleblower complaints, like that's nice, but I don't know that CCOs need to worry about those issues. So Matt, next up uh, is really, I thought, uh, not only a prescient uh, topic to watch, but really one that I think opens into a lot of other areas, and that is the Federal Reserve's inspection of technology service providers. You want to maybe set the stage a little bit and then see why we all need to think about this going forward? Yeah, sure. So um, the Federal Reserve inspects 
banks for the reliability and the resiliency of their operations to assure that there is no sort of systemic risk in the financial system that if it came to pass, the whole financial system and the banking world would go down and we'd have uh, the repeat of the financial crisis of 2008 or worse. Fed does not want that, period. So for a long time, the Fed has been assessing the soundness of banking operations. And now more and more, the Fed is saying, well, if you banks are relying on these technology vendors for so many of your mission critical processes, we, the bank examiners, need to also understand those tech providers. And we need to know that they are secure, they are reliable, their relationship with you, how does it work? Is it secure? Is it reliable? Um, logically, that makes a lot of sense. And now in the real world, we have even a more compelling case is that when uh, Capital One had its big data breach last summer, that actually happened because Capital One relies on Amazon Web Services to run its technology platform. And that's where the breach happened. A former AWS employee was the one who hacked into AWS and then hacked into Capital One and stole a whole lot of this data, which then ultimately I don't know that the data ever was sold on the black market. They they wrapped up this woman pretty quickly. Um, the, the FBI did and she's facing charges now. But um, that was an example of a technology provider was the conduit for a significant banking failure that the Fed does not want to see. And then later on in the fall, we saw the Fed starting to give speeches that it will be doing a more of this examination of tech providers. And for everybody else uh, who is not in banking, who's listening and saying, what's in this for me? Well, think of all the potential ransomware attacks against tech vendors you use, and they get shut out, and then your processes that run with those vendors are now defunct. And what would happen to your business? And I thought, Tom, actually one of the most compelling things that I saw in 2019 was a chain, a Wisconsin tech provider was hacked, shut down by ransomware, couldn't pay the ransom, has been out of service, I think, for weeks on end. But that Wisconsin tech provider, its customers are nursing homes across the United States, more than 100 of them. And those nursing homes suddenly found they could not access patient data. They could not process billing claims to get money from Medicare. They could not um, use email. Uh, some of them couldn't even use their phone service. So that is how everybody who is not in banking still needs to realize your reliance on tech vendors is going to be a big risk. And if you see something like what happened with this Wisconsin provider in the nursing homes, you know, nursing home regulators are suddenly going to wake up and they're going to do the same thing the Fed is doing with the banks. Eventually, we are going to see many regulators just make this par for the course. So compliance officers need to start getting ahead of this, I think, and make sure that, you know, when people start asking you these questions, you can give good answers. Matt, the reason uh, this entry intrigued me or one of the reasons it intrigued me so much is it really seemed to me to open up a much broader discussion of what is risk, the uh, evolving nature of risk, how risk is changing and how risk must be managed literally from the top of the organization down to uh, the very bottom. We saw a series of uh, conversations or discussions around what's the board's role in this. and But this level of, of detail around 
cybersecurity, and of course now with the CCPA coming live, it it points to something that you have talked about, which is operational resilience. Do you see an intersection with operational resilience in this topic? I do, yeah, because um, operational resilience is really the organization's ability to withstand and recover from a shock or a disruption. And so in the nursing home case, those nursing homes were not able to withstand the shock of one of their tech providers suddenly going belly up. And now we've got no access to our data. We've got no access to our ability to bill Medicare and Medicaid. And if you don't do that, you don't get any money. And now what are you nursing home going to do? Um, And I should not even get too hung up on the nursing home example because several weeks after that, a different tech provider in Colorado that does the same sort of business for dental practices also was a victim to a ransomware attack. And it went down and all of a sudden these dental practices across the western half of the U.S. were suddenly finding we can't operate. Um, You know, when a business can't operate, especially in a high profile or highly regulated industry, such as banking, such as healthcare, uh, regulators are going to get in on this. Uh, Unhappy customers are going to complain and get on the news. And then the directors of these companies that have been caught flat footed, you know, you're going to have to respond to that. And the really the better approach we all know is to get more assurance from your tech providers that they are reliable business partners. And so that's why all of this is so tied up in technologies, because that's what we use to run our our business processes today. And we don't do it. We use technology to outsource it to somebody else. And who are they and how secure are they? I don't know. That's not the good answer, but that's the that's the honest answer for most of us. Um, and trying to figure out how to get that assurance around their risks so you don't experience it. That's what we're going to have to go through. Matt, next up is the topic of climate change disclosure. And before I get to a question I want to pose to you, I just want to say that this is uh, the one topic that you have a, a visual representation, a picture yeah. posted next to the topic. And I, and I will have to say it is both uh, the most informational picture and also the most horrifying yep. because it shows, a, uh, I think, a, a young man uh, fleeing the fires in Australia. But the more closely you look at it, you see he's on a body of water. Yes. But it looks like uh, he's in the middle of a fire. Um, I saw a graphic this morning that indicated the fires in Australia are a factor of 10 to 15 times greater than the California wildfires in 2017, 2018. So for most Americans, that's our experience is those wildfires. And this is literally just horrific in uh, Australia. And it's really driven home, I think, uh, in a much more forceful way climate change. But what I wanted to get, all, all that's a very long-winded way of introducing the topic uh, that you brought up, which is how do businesses begin to think through their uh, legal obligation to disclose the financial risk around climate change? And are businesses really going to have to lead this discussion since the current administration uh, has completely denied climate change exists? I, and I think that's going to be Ultimately, if we want, Tom, you and I want to do a compliance events to watch for the decade, climate change, I think, would be on it. I think it'd be very near the top that we're going to have a very different discussion about climate change by 2030 
than you and I are having even right now. Um, but that, that image that I put on my uh, post, and I think many people might have already seen this on social media, uh, it is a boy of about 10 or 11, I think, whose mother took this picture when they had to flee their home, take shelter in the, the ocean off of their town uh, in southeastern Australia because that was the only place that wouldn't be burning. Um, but he's on a boat. He's wearing a face mask. The sky is this dark, burnt orange color um, when it is the middle of the day when they took that photo. But there's no blue sky. There's no sun. And for people wondering how is this going to really affect corporate life, I would actually say this. This 10-year-old who's in this photo, this is going to be one of the defining moments of his life. So for the rest of his life, he is going to be thinking about how climate change is real how it affects him, um, who is he going to vote for, because Australia also has a climate change denier who is the prime minister who was on vacation in Hawaii when this happened. Like This child, when he comes of age, will never support somebody who is not aggressively thinking about climate change. How are we going to grapple with it? Um, and there are billions of people his age who are going to become of age, even in this decade, who are going to be thinking about it and asking companies the same thing. Um, some regulators are actually starting to think about this. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve, yet again, they had a paper that they published in October thinking about the effects of climate change and the financial system. Um, what is the world going to look like? What's the insurance business going to look like? What is the real estate business going to look like in 10 years, 20 years, when some of those most valuable property in the world today is on the southern coast of California. Well, if that's underwater, if that's on fire, all of those homes that are worth millions today are not going to be worth anything. And there are banks that have issued mortgages on them. There are insurance companies that have insured those homes. So the Fed is starting to realize, okay, well, how's this going to work in 10 years if everything we've we use in our financial system is predicated on the world not burning down when it now clearly is starting to burn down. Uh, and I just think that more and more people are going to start asking companies to do something about this or what are they doing? There's going to be more regulation about it eventually. Um, and companies need to start understanding that and there's going to be real costs here. I, I think about what happened with Pacific gas and electric, who's very poor management, uh, coincided with climate change in California, and they did burn half of California to a crisp. And PG&E is uh, it's in bankruptcy, and I don't know what its fate is going to be. But if you are an investor in PG&E, like this is how it bites you in the rear end, and we're going to see more and more of it. And I think starting this year. So, in addition to regulatory requirements, um, there's really just the business risk as well. So, oh yeah, you sit on the coast. I sit 50 miles from the coast. Do businesses in our respective home cities, certainly in Houston, they need to think about storms because of hurricanes. And I don't know if nor'easters rise to the level of of a, a risk to a business, but do businesses along the coast need to start thinking about this, not as a, a, a data recovery or an op- operationalizing issue, but as, as a real existential threat to being able to do business? I think in some ways they do. I mean, certainly in Boston, if you know the city, uh, you've probably seen that the biggest chunk of development that has happened in Boston is in our seaport district, which is expected to be underwater within 30 years or so. And yet we've put 
at least a billion dollars worth of new construction in there over the last 20 years. So how's that all going to work for a lot of people? Now, certainly for a lot of businesses that are there, they're just renting. They're going to up and move further inland. Um, but, you know, there's going to be all sorts of ways that I think climate change is going to seep into business operations that you need to think about. Um, there are certainly there are going to be all sorts of other practical issues, such as what do what would you do if you are an employer and your company burns to the ground, your properties burn to the ground, your employees are what are they unemployed? If you fired them, are you going to lay them off? You're going to pay their wages. Um, do you have insurance for that? Has anybody stopped to think about that? And I'm willing to bet that some people have thought about it at large companies, but uh, that probably a lot of other companies have not. Uh, so, you know, that's the sort of thing that we're going to see in dribs and drabs. I would note also investor groups think about this a lot and the rising interest in climate related shareholder resolutions over the 2010s, that is real. There have been more of them. There have been more of them that then get withdrawn, which means the company is giving those investors at least some of what they want. But those that actually go to a vote are getting higher and higher vote totals. And you know, there's only one way that this is going. There's no momentum to think that climate change is, is wrong or is going to recede, except maybe in the White House. But other than that, like everybody else gets that this is a real thing that they're going to have to think about. So my next up, we have a another Supreme Court issue uh, involving the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this is a case that has, I think, um, some uh, possibility of at least a significant impact on the Securities and Exchange Commission and their authority to uh, require profit disgorgements. It's a case entitled Lou versus the SEC. You want to take it from there? Uh, I will try to take some of it, Tom, although I've listened to some of your podcasts and writings. I know you've thought about this, too, but... Lou versus SEC is the case of a uh, fraudster, Charles Lou from California, who bilked a bunch of foreign investors who were promised some visas to come and live and work in the United States. They did not get it. They sued, and uh, the SEC brought civil charges against Mr. Lou, and eventually a court ordered him to pay $26 million, I think, in disgorgement. And um, he turned around and said that the SEC actually doesn't have power to use disgorgement as uh, some sort of, well, he called it a penalty. I would call it relief and restitution for the wrong victims. But the Supreme Court agreed last fall that they're going to hear arguments on this case, which means at least five of the nine justices say, all right, let's hear this out. Uh, The arguments are going to be heard on March 3rd. And in theory, a majority of the court could say, no, the SEC cannot require disgorgement of profits. Um, so my point for compliance officers would be it's going to be very difficult for you to tell the rest of your company that crime does not pay if the Supreme Court literally decides the SEC cannot collect the ill-gotten gains from some sort of a scheme and you can keep the money that you got. Um, I don't know where this is going to come down. Tom, you might know better than me what the statutory discrepancies are here. I know the SEC is very much against this case. The Justice Department is against this case. The SEC has said that there's at least some laws where uh, restitution and um, disgorgement are on the books, and like we do have this power. I know Congress is moving to uh, also preempt all of this question by confirming in statute, yes, that uh, the SEC can use disgorgement. 
It's kind of a mess. I'm hard-pressed to believe that the justices are really so short-sighted in the real practical sense of things. Um, but I also kind of think maybe this is like the digital reality trust decision where it's going to be legally correct uh, under the law, but as a practical matter, just dumb. Um, but I don't know, Tom, what, what's your take on it, actually? So I think the legal position of Lou is that uh, disgorgement is a penalty, and that's not authorized by statute. The SEC's position is no. Uh, this is proceedings to obtain a restitution for investors who are defrauded. And um, under the, I think it's under the 34 Act uh, or an amendment to the 34 Act uh, that uh, came in about 30 years ago, or the 33 Act, I should say, uh, the Securities uh, uh, Law of 1933 is my reference, uh, that there's equitable power for um, the S Securities and Exchange Commission to do this. But I guess, Matt, the thing that concerns me is we've had lots of comments, uh, both publicly and in writings by at least two of the justices that they really want to go out of their way to gut the power of agencies um, that t Congress has delegated uh, decision-making authority to on and uh, want to require Congress to actually exercise authority and not give it to federal agencies. And if the Supreme Court uh, really moves down that path, this could be the start of just a radical um, transformation of how this nation is governed, uh, it all cl cl uh, cloaked within this case, which would do exactly what you say, allow fraudsters to keep the profits of their fraud. And um, yeah. if, if the court is going to go down that path, it seems to me that it's not only antithetical to the spirit of the law and what most people want, but really... Uh, any sort of uh, equity or or justice, we can throw those terms out as well, uh, which the Securities and Exchange Commission does have equitable power with. You know, I, I even want to kind of play around with the implications of this. For you know, I certainly understand that. Let's say disgorgement is off the table, um, but still, the SEC is going to bring cases. The Justice Department is going to bring cases. There's going to be lawyers involved in legal fees, and it's going to cost companies money to handle this. It actually, in a perverse way, I think, would encourage companies then to really engage in fraud, because if you're going to get to keep the proceeds, make sure there's a lot of proceeds, because this is going to be expensive, so it's got to have a payoff. Um, I could see that sort of perverse incentive settling in. And then in the be careful what you wish for category. Um, if, the SC, if the Supreme Court goes down this path, which clearly I think is a, a gross misreading of what people want, and the people want to be able to be made whole if they get screwed over by a fraudster, if the court says no, Congress probably is going to say, well, geez, you know, that's not a good decision. Let's fix it. And there is legislation looking to fix this and clarify that disgorgement is a legitimate SEC option. And it's also going to undo the Kokesh decision from several years before that had a five-year statute of limitations on seeking disgorgement. That would also go out the window if Congress does move forward with its legislative fix. So if there were ever an occasion where I would maybe encourage the justices to, like, get off of your theoretical high horse and live in the real world. In the real world, 
that would be a bad thing for them to take away disgorgement power. So don't do it. And then maybe the SEC, the uh, congressional legislative fix that's coming along might lose some of its momentum and who knows. But like, there's a dozen different ways this could play out that could really backfire on a whole lot of people. And I just it's going to be worth watching. Well said. Uh, next up, uh, and this, uh, although, of course, your blog posts and this podcast are really looking into the future, I'm going to have to say, Matt, this has been on your radar for several years and part of the discussions on compliance into the weeds over the past couple of years as well, which is critical audit matters. So critical audit matters for those who are not diehard audit and accounting fans. Um, they are matters that the external audit firm has identified as being material to the company's financial statements and subject to an awful lot of uh, complex and subjective judgment. So they are critical that they're important and you know nobody quite knows how how they get there. It is very subjectively based about what the number actually is. Starting last year, audit firms had to start reporting critical audit matters in their annual uh, audit report. Um, it's been a long time coming. Now it's here. It's not a terribly new idea. They've been doing this in the United Kingdom and Europe for several years now, CAMS. Um, so my question is going to be, we saw a trickle of CAMS last fall after June 30th year-end companies started having their annual reports come out. Well, that's not many companies. Most companies are December 31st year-end. So we're going to see a lot more CAMS this spring once those filers start having their audit reports come out. I'm just curious to see what those CAMs are going to be. Um, they're going to be things probably around like goodwill accounting, uh, very technical financial instruments you're carrying on your books. How are those values assessed? Things like that. But remember, by next fall, we will see the first wave of a second year of CAMs. So will we see audit committees look at their CAMs in year one and say, okay, this is a critical accounting item. It's got too much subjective judgment. We don't want it to be a CAM. Audit and compliance people, change your internal controls to decamify it. Uh, and then will that actually happen? Because if it does, then we would presumably start to see it in the second year of CAM reports. And we'll start to have those by next September, October. Um, maybe they won't. We don't really know. CAMs are still very new in this country. Um, it would be a shame, but it is possible that we might just see this as more boilerplate, like management discussion and analysis or, or risk factors or something like that, that, you know, they, they, how informative are they really? Um, but they could be informative, and they could jolt audit committees to say, we don't like these CAMs here. We want to get rid of them. You get rid of them by get ridding the subjective part of judgment. So then you would be changing your internal controls to make those more objective evidence and data-based. And um, that's something audit and compliance executives would wind up having to do. So I'm curious to see if we'll see it this year. Well, I guess now having listened to you uh, flesh this out a little bit more, Matt, I, I would see this as something positive for both audit and compliance. If you can take away subjectivity uh, and add objectivity with, of course, robust human oversight, because I, I'm sure there'd be some sort of uh, uh, data component to this. Uh, this might seem or would seem to me that it could lead to actually more robust both audit and compliance. 
It could. That is a possibility. That is the uh, rosy scenario that I would like to see come past. Um, these cams are supposed to help investors understand where are the important items in your financial statements that you know they're probably very reliable. I mean, they're not unreliable, but they're subjective. They're basically they come from people's judgment. And will audit committees maybe see that, you know, we've got too many important things that are based on people's judgment. Let's make them more data driven. I'd like that. I think that would be wonderful. I think that would help investors. It reduces a whole lot of the risk around some things such as fraud or material misstatements or earnings surprises or anything like that. If we take CAMs for as they were intended and put them to good use, that's a big if. And we'll start to see if we do this year. And that's, that's why it's on the list. So Matt, unfortunately we are near the end of our time, uh, but I'm going to link to of course your post in the show notes and I hope our listeners will join us again where we take up uh, part two of this uh, two part special series. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to part one of this special two-part series where Matt and I are going to take a look at 10 issues, which we think will be important in 2020 and going forward. I've linked to Matt's blog post on this in the show notes. So check it out for more information. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up part two. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.